0: This morning we're going to be in Mark 7, starting off the chapter, and last chapter we broke it up into four parts, and the title was Ministry the Lord's Way. Uh, This morning I put a little twist on that title, and this uh, morning's sermon is titled Ministry Not, in capital letters, Not the Lord's Way. And we talked about how we're free in ministry and church and denominations, etc., to have the freedom uh, to do ministry, to do evangelism, to do what we're supposed to do, uh, provided we follow guidelines that are in God's word. Now, wouldn't that make sense? We're worshiping God, so wouldn't it make sense to follow it the prescribed way that he wants to be worshiped? Doing it way off base uh, is really not doing anything for him. Remember, this is about a relationship between us and our creator. For some of you, you might say, gee, I've been in church my whole life, I've never heard that you know and and believe me Jesus is going to hit it this morning as we go through the scripture he's going to start throwing the word hypocrite out to the religious system and you know he did he preached the way for the son to come into the world to die for our sins right so that we could be saved that's John 3:16 he wants the whole world to be saved and then once we're saved, not that we say, oh gee, I just can't wait to get to the finish line and when I die, I go to heaven, but that we actually have a relationship with him. We talk to him. We cry out to him. He, he answers us. He reveals things. We learn more about him when we go through, through his word. This morning, ministry not the Lord's way. Jesus is going to run into a group of religious leaders called the Pharisees and they put the people in a, in a burdensome position. Through their religious traditions, they put the people into bondage. And what Jesus was trying to do was to free them from that, so they could have a, a free, peaceful, joyous relationship with the ever-living God. Now, I don't normally give homework assignments, but I would ask you to do me a favor before the end of the day. Can you read Matthew 23? All right, we're in Mark 7. Matthew 23, it's many, it's, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 verses. It's pretty long. And then as you're reading Matthew 23, think about maybe Christian TV, think about a church you grew up with, think about um, just religion in general, and you'll see that what Jesus said 2,000 years ago applies today, in 2014 in New Jersey. So we're going to jump in, and I'm just going to warn you that, like I said, Jesus starts to offend the religious guys, the religious system. So I have no doubt that some of the things I'm going to say this morning will probably be offensive, but you know, it's God's word and and this is what he wants. So we're going to, we're going to check that out. So let's jump in. Verse one, it says, then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, to Jesus, having come from Jerusalem. So number one, who are the involved persons? We're going to break this up into seven parts. So the first part is who are the players? Who are the characters? Scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem. That's important. Pharisees, their name actually literally means separated ones. They wanted to be separate from the people. Now, at the time of Christ, you can, again, check this in historical sources. There was about 6,000 Pharisees at the time. So there's a pretty good number of them. They were largely middle class. They had a pious appearance. They wore robes and vestments, and they wanted to make sure they looked different from the common person. They had a strict tradition, and they had distinct vestments. Now, some notable Pharisees, they weren't all bad. There's some awesome Pharisees in that group that really wanted to serve the the Lord, but it probably wasn't the majority. Notable Pharisees, Nicodemus in John 3. Joseph of Arimathea, after Jesus' resurrection, caring for the body. And Gamaliel, you know, don't go after these guys. If it's from God, you're fighting against God. So three notable Pharisees. We move on to the scribes. Who are the scribes? Well, the scribes started out really as copyists and secretaries for the law. Then they got so good at the law that they started to be able to interpret the law, and they evolved into expert lawyers in the law. And the scribes were scattered throughout the Jewish sects. So we find out that in the Pharisees, there were some scribes that came from Jerusalem too. Now, both of these groups really usurped, if you understand the whole spiritual system of the day, The priests were supposed to be teaching. The priests were supposed to be doing the sacrifices. They were supposed to be somebody you could look up to. But the priesthood, again, according to biblical and secular sources, both agree that the priesthood had become corrupt. So these other groups started springing up and really usurping some of the priest's authority. So a lot of the people didn't know who to follow. So Jesus came at the perfect time. He also came at the time where the religious system was the most decadent in society. And you can see Jesus' powerful expressions, and you can hear the, 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 the sorrow or, the, or sometimes even the righteous anger in his voice when he dealt with these groups, because that's not what God had set up. Lastly, from Jerusalem. This was supposed to be the spiritual seat of the Jews, but over time, it became the political seat of power and money. And sadly, Judaism had broke down into sectarianism, As I go through this, let's think about Christianity, too. Let's think about what's happened over 2,000 years. Let's think about how some of the purity has been lost over the years. So the Judaism had broken down in sectarianism, and their fatal flaw was that they started following rabbinical teachings instead of the word of God. And there were some rabbis that were very, um, in in the Mishnah and some of the old books, they were very outright about saying that the tradition was even more important than the scripture. How do you say something like that? And say that you're a person who follows God, but we can't pick on the, we can't pick on them too much, can we? Well, what have we seen in Christianity? I, I grew up Catholic. You know, we had 1,700 years of papal decrees. We had the the Catechism. We had the Council of Trent, Vatican I, Vatican II. We had so much paperwork that it actually superseded the pages of the Bible. And sometimes what was said strictly contradicted what was said in the scripture. So we don't see that? Every time you think you're following the right rules, they change the, the goalpost and they move it on you. Well, let's not get down too hard on them either. Jehovah Witnesses changed their New World Translation three times. And by their own admission, they had their followers follow the King James, which is a Trinitarian Bible. And they say that there's no such thing as a Trinity. Talk about confusion. Read the Book of Mormon, look at all the revisions. Does God, God's word change? Well, the Book of Mormon has been revised dozens of times. They keep changing. They keep moving the goalpost on us, right? Let's get close to home. What about Calvary Chapel? (laughs) I'm one of the few Calvary Chapel pastors that'll say this, but I don't care. We have problems in our movement, too. We got so many Christians following so many books T.D. Jakes, Joel Osteen, Oprah Winfrey. You know, they're following this for their walk with the Lord, and a lot of this stuff is garbage. It's not based on Scripture, or it's a one-sided story. So this is what happens. We start to lose purity. And the only way to get back to purity is to go back to the Scripture and read what the Bible is saying, read what Jesus' own words are. And we'll check that out. Verse 2. Now when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? So the second part of this is the religious problem. The religious problem. This was not a sanitary issue. They didn't say, hey, we saw James and John cleaning the horse manure there and uh, they started eating with their hands. That's disgusting. No, this is a ceremonial washing. Actually, I was in the house of a, of a rabbi and uh, I actually saw it with my own eyes the separation in the sinks, the separation of the food, all the rules they had to follow just to eat a meal. And I thought I could never live like this. And they really thought that that would get them to uh, pious, piety, or religious purity. And Jesus is expressing this particular thing. These guys would wash, you know, some of them would wash from their hands and let it drip down to the elbows. And then they would put their hands down and wash from the elbows and let it drip down their fingers. And then, just in case the water got defiled that was supposed to be washing them, then they would dip their hands a third time. I mean, this had to be a precursor to OCD because, you know. <laughs> But why did they do it? Sometimes things can start off good, and even in religion, and it becomes a problem. This was loosely tied to Exodus 30, loosely, where the priest who ministered and offered the sacrifices in God's presence on behalf of the people had to wash themselves. Okay? They had to do a certain uh, ceremonial washing. However, these groups usurped that, took it for themselves, and then took it an extra mile. Now, as I go through these I'm going to break this up into six points, too. As I go through these six points, again, think about religion today. Are all religious traditions bad? Of course not. You know, sometimes we do traditions in a church that are based on something scriptural or something innocuous. But the, you, we have to know how to separate the two. What's, what's problematic and what's not? So the first thing the Pharisees did was, they didn't take the scripture a step further. They took the scripture a mile further. They washed every day, multiple times, uh, multiple time occurrence. So the first thing they did was they made, they tried to make a relationship with God burdensome. I'm going to read to you a scripture that Jesus came to unburden us, not to further burden us. The second thing is, it says when they come from the marketplace, this is important because when they left their little group of Pharisees, you know, and they went into the world, well, they might run into a Gentile who was unclean. They might run into a non-observant Jew who was unclean, and they might be defiled. You can find this in the rabbinical writings. I'm not making this stuff up. So they felt that they were defiled, and they needed to be purified, so they would wash. So the second thing we see is segregation. I have a big problem with segregation in the body of Christ. I don't like to see it. I don't like to see Christians say, well, this is our group, and that's your group, because the Bible is very clear that Jesus came to break down the barriers of male, female, Jew, Greek, right? Um, Whatever, whatever the the breakdown is, he came to bridge us and bring us back together. And uh, sometimes in religion it it resegregates and I think it's wrong. The third thing, this is a very odd teaching, they thought that demons could kind of loiter on your hands or your utensils and you could possibly ingest a, a demon so you had to wash like the water's going to get the demon off, you know. <laughs> so the third thing that religion does is it, it brings in, a lot of times, superstition. Before I was a born-again Christian, I had a, a gold crucifix, and when I would get worried or something, I would hold it like a charm. It was a piece of gold, you know what I'm saying? And I have no problem with anybody wearing crosses. Please, don't, don't get me wrong. But the meaning that I had behind it was, was off. It was way off base. I didn't have a relationship with God, but that was my, my kind get of get-out-of-jail-free card. In case I got in trouble, I would hold on to it, and it's weird. But it's superstitious. Religion can sometimes bring in superstition instead of a relationship with God. The fourth thing is that it made those doing the ceremonial washing and their vestments and their dress look more spiritual than those that didn't. So the fourth thing it brought in was a false piety. And number five, the requirements often evolved, but God's matchless, timeless, perfect word never changes. Keep that in mind. When I talked about the opening, when I talked about the new trend in even Christianity, the new te- trend in what Calvary people are doing, or Catholicism, or any other group that claims to be Christian, if they keep changing stuff, that's a problem, because God's word never changes, All right. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He can't get better because he's perfect. So the, the fifth point is that it's constantly changing. And six is that the religious leaders, you could almost, as you read this, see them scrutinizing. Oh, that's him. That's the guy. Yeah, that's that upstart rabbi. Yeah, that's the guy, the miracle worker. Follow him. You know, it's like they had their, their black unmarked cars, you know, with the tinted windows, and they were just kind of right around the corner waiting for Jesus and the disciples. It's a joke. They didn't have those cars back then. But basically, they, they scrutinized. And religion can do that. It can scrutinize. How many times have you talked to somebody that said, I didn't feel welcome in that church? The way I look, the, the way I dress, my, my lifestyle, whatever it is, I felt that I was not welcome. Religious can, religion can scrutinize at times. Here's the problem. When a person is burdened by religious traditions or religion, They do one of a few things. They quit religion and by extension quit God because they feel that they're inextricably linked. You know, religion and God go together. So I can't take it anymore. I quit this and then God's got to go too. And that's not true. It's not true. Or two, well, what do I have to do to get back into a right standing? Write a check, you know, say a few prayers, go through this routine, this ceremony. But God has no use for those things. So ministry, the, not the Lord's way, is number one, burdensome. It's condemning, it's depressing and it's hopeless. I want to read to you Matthew 11:28 through 30 Jesus says this: "Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you more burdens." No, He says, "I will give you rest. Rest." Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now understand that this word in the Greek can sometimes be interchanged with the spirit and the mind. Now remember, when our spirit is ministered to, our our mind starts to work properly as well. We start to Understand there's healing that takes place as we forgive ourselves for things that we've done because we know that God forgives us. So the mind starts to work better as well as everything else. And the last part is He says, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, This is what I want to give you. I want to give you freedom. I want to unburden you. I don't want you to be stressed out when you worship me. I want you to love me and I want to love you and I want you to receive all the gifts that I have for you. Verse 6. This is where it gets good. Jesus answered and said to them, it's not small talk. I mean, he goes right it. He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written. And he quotes Isaiah 29, 13, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain, they worship me teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men for laying aside the commandments of God. You hold the tradition of men the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. And he said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. Man, that is powerful. Has anybody not read this before ever? Just curious. Have you ever not read this in scripture, anybody? So all of you have read this or are you just afraid to raise your hand? (laughs) It's good stuff, isn't it? I saw you, you had your mouth open. You're like, whoa, I got good eyes. I can see a lot from up here. So basically, the third part that we see is blatant religious hypocrisy emanating from the heart. I actually misquoted Jeremiah last Sunday. It wasn't Jeremiah 17.6, it's Jeremiah 17.9, and it says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's only God that knows it. He searches the hearts and the minds, the scripture says. But we can deceive ourselves in our own hearts and think we're doing something for the Lord and our motives are, are off. Or we're doing something that maybe makes us feel good, but doesn't necessarily make him feel good. Let me just explain this scripture in Isaiah's day. I just quote it again. It says, these people, this people, in Isaiah's day, centuries before Jesus, they honor me, God is speaking, with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It's that religious lip service. I love God. I have my own relationship with God. Blah, 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 blah. But really, their heart's not there. It's just coming from the mouth. It sounds good. It sounds good in church. But the heart's really not for God. And God knows that. And in vain. It's futile. It's, it's worthless. That they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What did I talk about in the beginning? All the religious rules that religion tar- tries to burden others with. I say this. We don't have a, an extra set of rules. You want to join this church? We don't have a, a book of order or another set of Doctrines of of Calvary Chapel. If you do something wrong, I'm just going to point out scripture to you. That's all. Nothing in addition to scripture. It's that simple. And here's the attitude just appease God. Just get him off my back. What do I have to do to make him happy? What do I have to do to get into heaven? Think about that statement. Don't we all want to get into heaven? Who wants to be judged? I don't think any of us do. So we all want to get into heaven. So basically, we all want to go to God's house when we die. Well, we don't want God. Does that make any sense? Would you go to anyone's house that you didn't like? Unless, of course, you were burglarizing their house, but hopefully you're not doing that. People want to get to heaven, but they don't really care about having a relationship with God. That's weird. It doesn't make, it's not logical. You know, we use logic when we build bridges and airplanes and things like that. We use engineering and mathematics and trigonometry and all that stuff. However, when it comes to God all logic goes out the window. We have these ideas that don't even make sense. And God's like, it's an an insult. Verse 10. For Moses said, and he's quoting the Old Testament in Exodus, honor your father and mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, religious men, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban that is dedicated to the temple. And you no longer let him do anything for his father and his mother, making the word of God of no effect for your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Now you can imagine this didn't go over too well. (laughs) You wonder why Jesus hung on a cross? Well, it was prophesied. He had to die for our sins, but certainly by him espousing the truth, sometimes the truth hurts. Religious system did not want to hear it. They did not want to change. They had a good thing going in their minds. So what's the, what's the answer? Kill John the Baptist. What's the answer? Kill Jesus. And that's what happened. Fourth part that we see is this example of religious hypocrisy. Now, I like this because Jesus is giving them specifics. And I submit to you, he's doing it out of love. When uh, any of the leaders and their wives counsel somebody in the church... One of the things we teach is couples is to fight fairly. You know what I'm saying? There's certain boundaries. Um, don't hurt each other. Forgive each other. And what that does is it even you try to express yourself, it, it makes for a better relationship. Sometimes my wife will say something, you're being a jerk, and sometimes I am a jerk. But I want specifics. And I say, give me specifics. Okay, wait a minute. And then she gives me specifics, and she's usually right. I was being a jerk. But I want specifics. I want to know what I've done wrong so I can change it. You think that's funny? I'm purposely not here to... No, just kidding. (laughs) She had a throat issue. I want to know what I've done wrong so I can change. Jesus did this out of love. He gave them specifics. You ever have somebody give you a specific and it really cuts your heart? And you're like... It's almost like you got slapped. And they're just words. But you realize immediately that you've been playing the hypocrite. I've played the hypocrite and I will again. See, I want to digress for a moment. Confrontation is becoming more difficult in American culture, and I've cited articles from the pulpit. There's so many articles I don't have to cite them. You know, with technology and social media, and you know, like I said, you could be in the same room with somebody, no words are expressed, but you're texting each other, and it's kind of take it's kind of taken the humanity out of relationships. And they're finding now that especially people in our generation are having a hard time with relationships. People aren't getting married as much. There's this high rate of singleness in our country that's never been seen before because people don't know how to relate to each other anymore. Confrontation is one of the things that we must do. Matthew 18 speaks about if you have an issue with a brother or sister, even if you're not a Christian, talk to them about it, pray about it, measure your words. Have a discussion. Sometimes they won't hear it, but you did the right thing. You were the better person. Proverbs twenty seven six: faithful are the wounds of a friend. You're really friends with somebody? You've got to confront them sometimes. Because what happens if that doesn't happen, it leads to gossip. And gossip is pure cowardice. It's cowardice. What's worse than gossip is when gossipers get a Christian audience because they want to know information. They want to know what's going on. And I'll tell you this, that in the age of social media facebook websites and email is not the place for arguments and confrontation it's immature and it can be downright evil because it puts forth a one-sided story people will say things you ever read an article and it says comments closed for this section why because whoever was monitoring and i see that a lot it gets nasty it gets ugly it gets vicious and these people if you put them in a room, it's like back in the day, we would call it beer muscles. You know, We're trying to change your mind and you become stupid all of a sudden. But you put all these people in a room, they wouldn't speak like that to each other, but they feel empowered behind a keyboard. This is what our society is degrading into. And this is what Christianity is degrading into. Christian couples and young people. And, you know, it's, it's hard to have relationships because people don't confront and love anymore. And I'm very passionate about this because that's how all these lies get out there kind of reminds me of the three pastors who decided to get together and confess their sins to each other. So the first pastor gets up in front of the other two and he says, you know, he goes, ministry is so stressful. He goes, when I go home, I just, I go on my back porch and I chain smoke and, and I have a few beers and nobody knows that I'm doing it. And I feel really bad about it. And the other two go, oh, we'll pray for you. So the second pastor gets up and he says, "He goes, All right, he goes, I think mine's worse. He goes, I, I have this compulsive shopping issue. I love to shop and spend money. It makes me feel better. And sometimes, oh, I hate to say it, I dip into the offering bag and I take money to go do my shopping. are like, whoa. that's yeah, pretty bad, isn't it? <laughs> we'll pray for you. So they say to the third pastor, and he's just kind of like looking like the, the cat that ate the mouse. They're like, well, what's your issue? He goes, I love to gossip, and I can't wait to get out of here and tell everybody what you guys do. <laughs> Keep sending me the jokes. I find appropriate places to put them. Thank you. <laughs> Breaks it up a little bit. I submit to you that nobody else was willing to confront these religious leaders, but Jesus loved them enough, and John the Baptist, to confront them. And they both got death for it. What is this Corban thing? Corban was known, and it might even still be known, as an offering to the temple, and what made it worse is the money would go in, and the religious leaders would control it, and they were corrupt to begin with. So this is, this is why God had to do something in the first century. It was just really messed up. And what is he saying here? Well, remember, back in the day, there was no Social Security or Medicare benefits. So if you had aging relatives, it was your job to take care of them. Right? It was your job to put them up in your place and spend money and care for them and Let them live out the rest of their years in peace and uh, in dignity. What happened back then, and I know it sounds really hard to believe, but I've seen worse things in Christianity, is that if you gave enough money to the, if you gave enough Corban, you got a little bit of absolution from the religious leaders. So, hey, if you didn't feel like doing it at the end, you know, and and your parents got sick, maybe you didn't have a good relationship, they exempted you because you gave Corban it's pretty messed up, isn't it? You know, you get to pay for your sins. As a matter of fact, you know that the Protestant Rep- Reformation arose out of the church allowing wealthy people to pay more money for their sins. It was called indulgences. Where did Protestants come from? Not another planet. They came from within the Catholic Church. Good Catholics left the church and started Lutherans and and Wesleyans and all this because they couldn't deal with the corruption in the church. So good Catholics fought against good Catholics in wars, very sad, over this kind of stuff. But they just said, enough is enough. I can't believe this is going on in the church. Pretty bad. Verse 8. He basically says that these religious observances Listen, some can be innocuous, some can be bad, but these were so bad that it nullified the, Lord, the word of God. And some of the most precious uh, scriptures about taking care of the poor and the elderly and, and the most vulnerable of society, the religious leaders were helping to overturn that if you gave them enough money, if you greased their palms enough. Verse 14. And when he, Jesus, had called all the multitude to him, he said to them, Hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him. These are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So the fifth point was Jesus trying to free the multitudes of the bondage, of the shackles of religion. He gave a stunning revelation of the nature of sin and purity, which was taught improperly by the religious leaders. He basically said that wickedness emanates from inside out. Now, the mouth can do a few things. One of the things it can do is eat. You take things, and I'm very good at that, by the way. I'm an, I'm an expert. You take things from the outside world, you put it in your mouth and break it up, and it goes right into your body. So it goes in that one, one direction. The mouth can also speak. When we speak, it's usually a reflection of our heart. Now, we misspeak. We say things, and we're sorry for them. But a lot of times, what we say comes directly from what we feel. Now, this is important. This term, heart, we keep reading it, and some of you may be in the science field, and you know, I went to Rutgers. I studied the sciences. I love science. Pastor Joe, the heart doesn't talk. It's a four-chamber cardiac muscle. Yes, I know that. But the word heart actually emanated way back in ancient times. The Hebrews used it. And what they meant was... So if you're looking at the Psalms, you're looking at the Old Testament, somebody would say, one of the Old Testament writers say, from my insides, my, my kidneys, my, my heart, right? All these organs that just kind of do stuff with your food and, and help you stay alive. But the concept was understood, and we bring it into, it went through Greek culture, Roman culture, all the way to American culture, songs about the heart, my heart. I mean, I'm not going to sing, but you know what I'm saying. You know where I'm going. The heart was a combination of three things. The intellect, the emotions, and the will. That is what makes the decisions. So between the intellect, the emotions, and the will, that was understood, encapsulated in the term heart. So that helps us to understand what's going on. You might say to me, Pastor Joe, how is it that something from the outside doesn't defile us? What does Jesus mean? What about addictions? What about drugs and alcohol? Well, that's an easy one. If you, if you gave me a big bottle of vodka and unscrewed the cap and I dipped my finger in it and I smelled it and I put it on my tongue and then you left me alone and said, it's all yours, I wouldn't touch it. I'd probably use it to start a fire in my fire pit. It doesn't do anything for me. However, the next guy might go nuts over it and in an hour's time he might finish that, that whatever, quart of vodka, whatever, whatever's there. But for me, it might be something else. The Bible tells us in the book of James that, that there's temptations to each, each different person has a predisposition to a different temptation. And it's not sin actually until you're introduced to that external temptation and inside you, your, your temptation, your desire matches that. You take hold of it, you sin with it, then it becomes sin. But it's different for each person. So even pain pills... Some people hooked on pain pills. Some people need it because they have pain and they don't they don't abuse it. So is it is it sinful? No, it's not. It's innocuous. It serves a person a purpose for one person, but for somebody else it serves a different purpose. We we get in all this. Even money. Is money bad? No. Money is a medium of exchange. But the love of money is the root of all evil. Some people can't have a lot of money because it makes them do crazy things. Some people just use it to, you know, feed their family and Take care of their business or what have you. So, just, as long as we understand that, it, it isn't what goes in, it's what comes out. It's what comes out. And here's the thing sometimes, it, well, in religion, sometimes it's um, you know, you got to do these things and it'll make you better. You'll sin less, it'll make you pure. That's wrong. It's backwards. What the Bible says is if you are changed from the inside, if you have trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, your heart is changed, you regenerate, you're a different person. Yes, you still sin, we're connected to this body of death, but our primary desire is to please him. Then we do things, good works, give to the poor, not because somebody's forcing us to do it, but because we want to do it, because our heart is changed, right? So we have to understand the difference in which direction it's going in. God says... I want your heart. I don't want your stuff. I don't want your money. I don't want your your good works. I want your heart. For some of us, that's hard to give. So why does religion do this? Because it's easier. It's easier. I mean, let's face it. If I have a problem, a flaw, a sin flaw in my life, and I'm like, yeah, I'm the pastor of the church. I got I got to get rid of this." If I could go to the drive-through and, and pay some money and and you know, or the car wash, and, and the inside gets washed too. I'm doing it. I'm there. But that's not reality. Reality is through, through God. He helps to change us. And verse 16, Jesus says, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. That's something we should say every Sunday. Some people will get offended by this message. I didn't write it, but I agree with it. And some will actually listen and take it to heart and say, What is the Lord trying to show me through this message? And back then it was the same thing. He was saying to the multitudes, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Some are going to hear what they want to hear. Some are going to look for something to get offended by, usually the religious leaders, and others were going to change because of it. Verse 17, last few verses. And when he had entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. They still wanted to know more. So he said to them, are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? It cannot make him impure. It cannot make him unclean. It cannot make him sin. Because it, now, he's spoken about food here in particular, because it does not enter his heart, the, the will, right? The emotions, the intellect. However, it, em, it enters his stomach. It is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man from far from within out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts adulteries fornications murders thefts covetousness wickedness deceit licentiousness an evil eye blasphemy pride foolishness all these evil things come from within and defile a man sixth point the lord espouses a deeper understanding to disciples why because they were going to be teachers they were going to be the pillars of the church. They needed to know this stuff. He had to go into great detail with them. James 3.1, as teachers, we're held to a higher standard. Right? He knew that they, and good for them, because I think they had an inkling of, of their purpose, walking with the Lord, and they wanted to make sure they had this down pat before they moved on to the next teaching. So, what is Jesus saying? Well, I don't think we really need to have a discussion about... Listen, we all have different diets, but we all put food down the alimentary canal, and 12 hours later, we all get the same result. So I'll just leave it at that. Right? It's all the same. It's all common. Verse 23. He says, All these evil things come from within and defile a person. Do you know that the Sermon on the Mount brought out this heavily? How many people love the Sermon on the Mount? So let me ask you a question. Did the Sermon on the Mount make it easier to be pure and, and godlike or, or godly, or did it make it more difficult? So why do we love it? We read something that I, I might read it, and before I read it, I might say, well, I'm not doing too bad on the Ten Commandments externally. And then I read the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says, well, if you have these thoughts, you just haven't put your feet and your hands to it, but it's already there, it's festering in your heart. You're like, oh, I can't win you know, I'm condemned on a lot of these points. But what does the Sermon on the Mount do? It scratches where we're spiritually itching. What it does is it shows us our need for a Savior, and that's the beauty of it. It opens up our heart. It plows that ground and makes it fertile to receive the seed of the gospel. And when we allow the heart of our ground to be plowed then the Lord can come in. See, the Lord is not barbaric; he's not overbearing. We have to open up our heart. We have to take down the walls. We have to, you know, open the gate to let him reach in and have a part of our heart. And that's an awesome thing. Verse or the last point number seven is our understanding. I'm just going to go through um, maybe eight brief differences, obvious differences, and then we'll, we'll close. So, religious traditions, it's supposed to work outside to affect the inside. True relationship with God, it starts on the inside, in the heart, and it affects what we do on the outside. Religious traditions, it's what we do. True relationship with God, it's who we are. Religious traditions, rules that end up getting broken and we're punished for it. Relationship with God, principles to live by. Religious traditions, physical, powerless to affect the spiritual. True relationship with God, the spiritual is the seed of power that affects the physical. Religious traditions, in bondage to restrictions and rules. Don't do this, don't do that. True relationship with God is faith that leads to freedom. Religious traditions, no effect on God. True relationship with God, what God desires and responds to. The last two. Prayer and the word of God, religious traditions, prayer is a meaningless mantra. Say it over and over again. You do penance. You're told to say it over and over again. And the bigger the sin, the more times you say it over and over again, you just become memorized and there's no meaning behind it. When we have a true relationship with God, what is prayer? Talking to God. I get up in the morning. Oh, Lord, it's another day. You know, I have breath in my lungs. You know, let's see what what you're going to do with me today. That's prayer. Talking to God. The Word of God in religious traditions, a lot of times it gets crowded out and Jesus said it becomes nullified, God's Word. In a true relationship with God, it's through God's Word that we have a better relationship with God. I, you know what? I don't ever say anybody in the church, what would you read this week? You know, how many verses? How long did it take you to do that? Go ahead, spit it out to me. My attitude is we read because we want to learn more about Him. He saved us, Right? If you were drowning and, and you couldn't swim and you were going under and all of a sudden you felt on your torso somebody grab you and pull you to the surface, surface, wouldn't you want to thank them? Wouldn't you want to know a little bit about that person? Like you want to tell everybody about this person who saved you from drowning. Well, Jesus saved us from the flames of hell. I want to know until, until my last breath, I want to know about him. And I have to tell you that Christians in other countries that are being persecuted, all they want to do is love God and they're faced with death or convert to another religion, they're going to take Jesus right to the grave. It happened in the Roman Empire too. When the Romans tried to squash out Christianity, tried to eradicate it, stamp it out, Nero was brutal, tortured, tortured these people and their children. Christianity only grew. As the expression said, the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. What I just ask you to do this morning is If you know the Lord, consider how he fought for you and I to save us, to teach us right, to to keep us from judgment. If you don't know the Lord, I think that you could agree with me, especially if you've been to some places and you haven't been wanted, especially if some things were tied to God and, and your feelings were hurt or you were abused in some way as you read this, I think that you inside are cheering. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Like he's fighting for me. Jesus came to die for your sins. And in addition to that, he came for you to be spiritually healthy. He didn't want to throw you into some organization that's going to dilute your, your fire for him. That's going to water you down. Even though you're going to heaven what he wants to do is he wants to have a relationship with you so that you can su- succeed in this world, so you can prosper, so you can affect other people, so that when you get to heaven, you don't just get across the finish line, but you get trophies, you get rewards. That's what God wants for you. So regardless, this is a beautiful day. Whatever we do after we leave this church, I just would ask that we, we meditate on the one who went the distance for us. Think about these words and just see how we can have a heart change. Let's pray.